So before we get into our time in the Word, let's pray. Father God, we come to you in your mighty and matchless Son's Jesus' name. God, we thank you for your Word. I pray that you would move me out of the way. I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase and be made much of in the lives of your people. Speak to their hearts, God. I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your words. Father God, I pray for your spirit just to be present apart from your spirit working in the lives of your people. I'm just a man talking on a stage and your people need to hear from you. Open up their hearts, open up your word and provide an environment of worship to your name. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You probably have moved beyond the age of being afraid of monsters. Maybe. Some of us still might have a little issue with monsters, but there's one monster that I think you need to be aware of because this, this monster is sneaky. It's a sneaky little monster. It's called the me monster. And I have a video that I want to share you guys from a comedian by the name of Brian Regan. And he, he kind of explains a little bit about this me monster. So this is one of his uh, comedy sets. Let's look at the me monster. I'm actually kind of quiet off stage. A lot of people don't realize that. I was at a dinner party recently. A bunch of people that I don't know. One guy talking plenty for everybody. Me, myself, right? And then I, and then myself, and me, me. I couldn't tell this one about I because I was talking about myself, and then me, 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 me. Beware the me monster. So I tried to jump in with a little story. I don't want to just sit there the whole night. Right when I'm done with my story, this guy goes, that ain't nothing. Oh, well, didn't mean to waste everybody's time. Telling my nothing story. Here, let Marco Polo speak. He's back with tales of adventure. All right. The meat monster gets us all every now and then. It gets us, right? Maybe that's been you at some point. It's been me at some point. But the me monster is sneaky. It, 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 can, it can get us. And it, it causes divisions in relationships. The me monster can break up friendships. It can destroy teams. The, the me monster can destroy and explode marriages. The, the, the me monster can split churches and cause conflict in churches. It's very Sneaky. So what does, it, what does it look like? How can we be on the lookout for this meat monster? The, the meat monster looks like selfish ambition. It can look like conceit. It, it can look like arrogance or greed, defensiveness, right? Because when, you, when you're being controlled by that meat monster, you don't want anybody telling you anything about anything. So you can be a little defensive. It can look like possessiveness. I'm trying to own or control someone else or take away their agency. It can look like self Pity. I heard, heard an older lady tell me once, Terrence, don't fall into plum disease. I'm like, what is plum disease? She said, poor little old me disease. So th- that's what the me monster can look like, this, this form of, of self-pity. It, it can be very, very dangerous to our relationships. As we come to our text today, in Philippians, Paul is addressing the me monster in this congregation. Now, this is a congregation that Paul loved. 
This is one of his churches that Paul actually helped to start. He actually planted the church at Philippi. Uh, This church was a church that actually supported him as he was a missionary. And he's writing this letter to the Philippians out of love, but also out of concern for some of the conflict that's taken place at the church at Philippi. Just to give you a little background on the church at Philippi, we actually see this church come to fruition and be birthed in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 16, uh, we see the the, the beginning of the church at Philippi. Uh, It says, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Just a little side note on that, this was the Sabbath day, and usually on the Sabbath day, uh, they would be inside of a venue of worship called a synagogue, and those of Jewish descent would go there to worship and have their prayer meetings at a synagogue. In this story, we see that the, the prayer meeting isn't taking place inside of the city, it's actually taking place outside of the city gates. There weren't many Jewish people in Philippi because there was prejudice against people of Jewish descent in Philippi. And so even this uh, prayer meeting had to be held outside of the city gates. On top of that, there was a lot of zeal uh, for the Roman government in Philippi. So this idea of a king named Jesus didn't really bid well inside of Philippi. And so you're seeing this worship taking place outside of a city gate. And Paul begins to engage these women there who are having a prayer meeting. He says, we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So Paul goes to this prayer meeting that's taking place outside of the city gate. He proclaims the gospel, preaches the gospel, and this woman uh, comes to Christ. She gives her life to Christ. Uh, a thing to just pay attention here. They were paying attention to here. They were going through this opposition from outside. This, the, these, this community is facing persecution. They're, they're marginalized and pushed to the edge outside of the city gates, but God is still moving. Uh, People are still coming to Christ, and in particular, Lydia comes to Christ and becomes a person of great influence in this church at Philippi. Uh, It says, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she says, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us to to stay. What happens here? moving forward at the church at Philippi is the gospel begins to see fruit. People begin to come to Christ. The church would eventually begin meeting inside of Lydia's house. They would support other missionaries. They would support Paul. And and this church was beginning to be blessed and flourished in some way. Even though it's facing this opposition from the culture, God is still working in and through it which is what breaks Paul's heart when he finds out that there's conflict, deep conflict happening within this church. We're already facing conflict from the culture, but now there's conflict within the church, and that prompts Paul to write this letter to the church at Philippi. We see this 
in Philippians chapter 2, he continues to uh, talk to them. Philippians chapter 2, I mean, Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, it says, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Sintiki to be of the same mind in the Lord. Just to give you a little background, in this time in history, when this letter would be received at a church, someone would take the letter and they would stand up in front of the congregation and they would read it out loud. Now, if you, you're Yodia and Sintiki and this letter's being read out loud, you hear your name, he's just coming straight at you. He just went straight for it. Yodia and Sintiki be of the same mind. So it's not fair to say that the conflict was all about them, but they definitely are involved in this conflict and they were important to him. He says, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. These were women who served in the church at Philippi. They were leaders in the church. They were people of influence in the church, but they had some conflict and some tension going on between them, and it is, is breaking Paul's heart that he is seeing uh, this conflict in the church. And more than that, he, he is talking to people who are loved by God. These are people who have accepted Christ. These are his people. Let's go to the next text. Uh, these are people who, are, who are, are loved by God. He says, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. These were women who worked alongside him along with Clement and the other co-workers. And these two women are in conflict and it isn't just affecting them, it's affecting those around them. So Paul is calling them to unity. Let's go to the next, the next text. Unity is not easy, but it's worth it. This isn't easy. To step into a conflict, this was bold of Paul to step into that conflict. For him to engage and even call them by name, knowing that that was going to be read out loud, to step into uh, this conflict was a bold move. But the unity wasn't easy, but it was worth it. It was worth it for these people who are called and loved by God to love one another. Continuing in Philippians 2, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love... If any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love. He is speaking to the church. I have to emphasize that again. He says, if you've experienced God's love, if you've experienced Christ's love, this is an opportunity to share that with someone else, even though there is some tension and some conflict in the church. So God's people are called to be different. We're called to a higher standard. See, when we realize that we're loved, we love differently. When it hits us, when it actually hits us that I was a sinner and God forgave me and saved me, when it hits me that, that, that I've been saved by grace and I realize that I've been loved, then I love differently. I'm called to a higher standard of love. Jesus talks about this himself in the Gospels. Uh, he, he, he says when you realize you love, you love differently. Let's see, in Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, we see this. If you love those, and this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, he's calling them up to a higher standard. 
Not the transactional kind of love. Not the, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. And if you don't scratch my back, your back is just going to itch. Not that, not that kind of love. He calls them to something higher. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, that's difficult, that's hard stuff, that's a higher standard. But love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back, then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. This is a higher standard of love. This isn't transactional love. This isn't contractual love. This is a higher standard. And when you realize you're loved, you love differently. I also want to say this parenthetically. This is not an excuse for abuse. This is not license for someone who would be tempted. This is not license for you to hurt someone and say, okay, you're a Christian. You're supposed to to stay in this relationship with me even though I'm hurting you and causing you harm. This isn't license for abuse. Uh, This isn't license to allow yourself to be abused, right? So this isn't you know, this, I know some of you might be tempted to say, oh, does this mean I have to be a pushover? Does this mean, no, but this is, what this is saying that I extend grace as grace has been extended to me. Even if I have to extend that grace from a distance, I extend grace and I extend love as love has been extended to me. We as believers are called to a higher standard. And when you realize you loved, you love differently. Uh, let, let's continue in our text He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, we we, we give that to each other. And and he tells us to make uh, his joy complete. God is pleased when we love each other. And as Paul is penning this letter, it's breaking his heart that this church, this community that he loves so much is in conflict. Uh, We see it in the next verse. He, He tells them to make my joy complete by being of the being like-minded and having the same love. He says to make my joy complete. There's something about when two people that you love or care about are in in conflict. It just breaks your heart, whether it's your children, whether it's your parents. When you see two people that you care about in conflict, it's just something about that doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel good. Your joy is incomplete, right? This church is growing. This church is supporting a ministry, a a seminary. I I said a seminary. I don't know if they had seminaries back then. But they are supporting a missionary. And, and, but there's still something going on. Paul's joy is incomplete because these people that he loves, these people who are uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, aren't getting alone. He says to them, make my joy complete. We live in a world that needs to see a unified church. There's a lot to fight about these days, and, and quite honestly, people are, are tired. 
and a divided world needs a unified church. So our unity matters. Our, our unity is important. The unity, unity is not easy, but our unity is worth it. I love how Carrie Newhoff puts it. Carrie Newhoff, he says, an exhausted culture needs an alternative to itself, not an echo of itself. An exhausted culture needs an alternative to itself, not an echo of itself. People are tired. People come into the church weary from a weary, weary world. And this is a place that hopefully they can come and take a breath and get a sigh of relief from a world that's just so exhausting. And so we should be offering an alternative to the division in the world, not an echo. But what, what's difficult these days in the world that we, we live in is that sometimes uh, and oftentimes people come in looking for peace and unity from a divided world and sometimes they find a divided church and it's like, oh, where, where do I go to breathe? So we have a high responsibility and a high call towards unity. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. What does Paul mean by that, being of the same mind, by being like-minded? What does Paul mean? When a person becomes a Christian and becomes a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, comes and takes up residence inside of that person. God, the God of the universe, comes and lives inside of a human being. With that, we get something called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control. That comes and lives on the inside of us. And so when the Spirit of God comes and takes up residence inside of you, takes up residence inside of me, something should change. We're to be influenced by the mind of Christ. So not only are we empowered by the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God comes and takes up residence inside of us, we have the capacity now to love, but now we also have an example of how to love. Christ becomes our model. He shows us what it looks like to love others. He shows us what it looks like to love our enemies. He shows us what it looks like to practice humility in real time, in real life, when people don't like you or appreciate you, but you still love them anyway. He, he gives us that example. And so with that, we get the mind of Christ. We get the capacity to love, and we get an example of how to love. And in Christ, we're given the same playbook to go by. Christ becomes our playbook. We look at him as our example, as our model, and we follow after him. Christ becomes our playbook. But imagine tonight in the Super Bowl, and I know some of y'all are ready to get going and to get your wings and nachos and all that going for the Super Bowl. So we're going to try to get you out of here soon. But imagine tonight at the Super Bowl if the Cincinnati Bengals, who, who are playing, but I heard a lot of us are here going from the L.A. Rams because of the whole Detroit connection with Matt Stafford. But anyways, uh, let's just imagine that the Cincinnati Bengals, are, 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 they come out onto the field, and they've been practicing, and they've been getting coached, and their coach gives them one playbook, and they have a, a design for how they plan to win. Imagine if those players on that team each had individually different playbooks. And they went out there onto the field with different playbooks and different mindsets. Imagine the chaos on that, on that field. 
Now, now God isn't calling you and me to be uniform, to be just alike, to agree on everything. Uniformity isn't necessarily unity, right? So we don't, we don't, we, we can disagree on some things. There's a lot of things that we can, that we will, no doubt about it, disagree about, right? You might want the carpet blue. I might want it polka dot and yellow, but regardless of our disagreement on that, it's how we honor the humanity and dignity of the other in that disagreement. And unfortunately, we're kind of living in a time where that's kind of gone, where it's difficult to see examples of people who can disagree while loving one another. But God calls us to a higher standard. God calls us to a higher call, to be his billboard to the world, to show them, of a, show them a different way of how to live this out, to show them a different way of how to do this. So we're called to be of the same mind, of, of Christ-likeness. He says, be of the same mind. He says, love one another as Christ has loved you, when you realize you're loved, when you know that, when you get it in your heart, I'm loved by God. When you realize you're loved, you love differently. Let's continue in the text. Paul makes this practical for us. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I want to pause right there. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That word vain conceit translates in the original language to means empty glory. Do nothing for empty glory. And in real times, that, that real time, that empty glory can seem important. It can seem necessary to pursue self and to pursue what I want. Sometimes empty glory looks like being right in the argument. I will not be defeated in this argument. I'll go find as many articles as I can find to back up my opinion, or I can prove that my, my, my spouse is wrong, and I'm going to go Google it and dig up whatever I got to find to make sure that they know that they're wrong. And you can get the victory in that argument, but it is, at the end of the day, it's empty glory. And, and, and Paul, says, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit from that empty glory. But empty glory becomes the norm. Everybody's kind of doing it. Uh, the great philosopher slash uh, wrestler Nacho Libre says it like this. He says, don't you want a taste of the glory to see what it tastes like? Right? Don't you want a taste of it? It's, it's tempting to get that glory. And so this call towards humility it's very countercultural. He says, rather, rather this is countercultural, rather in humility value others above yourself. That is a radical thought. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. That is radical. That is countercultural. It wasn't cool then. I don't think it's cool now. A lot of people w- would pass on humility. Uh, let's look at uh, this quote from a scholar who studied uh, the context back then, she says, the, con- the concept of humility was disgusting in the eyes of the Greco-Roman world. It was disgusting. Humility was viewed negatively as servility, self-abasement. It was the graveling mentality of a slave. It was not looked upon as a great virtue in the culture. Hardly something to be admired or imitated. That's why the call to humility was countercultural. Let's continue. And, and, and those competing for status in this Roman colony would have found humility as something only worthy of a slave. 
It was not a virtue that people admired nor respected. And so Paul, speaking to these people in Philippi, calling them to a selflessness, is very countercultural. Uh, seeking the interest of another is very countercultural then and it is now. But we, as Christ followers, have a different foundation. Our faith in everything that we've been handed in Christ is established in agape love. Agape love, at that, point, at that moment in history, was a radical kind of love. It, it, it isn't a love that trades, right? You do for me, I do for you. It isn't a love that takes, but agape love is a love that gives. And it gives unconditionally without expecting anything back. And that's the kind of love that our faith is established on. That becomes the foundation of the Christian life, that everyone who accepts Christ has been given this agape love. You didn't trade Christ anything uh, in your salvation. You didn't give him some good works. You didn't give him enough time of volunteering. Uh, you didn't give him enough uh, selfless acts. No, you can't trade. You didn't give him enough money. There's nothing we can trade for this love. God gave this love freely, expecting uh, nothing in, that, in, in exchange with you. It's a, it's a love that gives. And this is what our faith is founded upon. I want to invite up my wife, Ashley. And so when two Christians are in a relationship, two Christ followers are in a relationship, their relationship is established and founded upon this agape love. If we don't have anything else in common... We have this in common. We, we've been given a, a common foundation. There's equity already built in this relationship. And when we get off track, we have something to return back to. But what happens in the relationship if someone chooses to step away from that foundation? And instead of choosing the other, that person begins to choose self-interest. And now I begin to elevate my self-interest in the relationship. It's about what I want. It's about what I like. It's about what I need. And this begins to get elevated over our foundation. This doesn't, this doesn't cultivate an environment of humility because more than likely when a person starts to seek their self-interest, the other person is going to feel inclined to defend themselves and to seek their self-interest. And we're just gonna keep elevating the issue because if I really want my way, I'm gonna make sure I get my way. <laughs> and then I don't want her to get her way. Now we're fighting. <laughs> but there, there, there's this climate now of selfishness and both of us want our way. And so I don't want her to have her way. So I'm gonna keep fighting for myself, lobbying for myself. And before you know it, we've built a wall of division between us. We built a wall of division. <laughs> Very high wall of division. <laughs> All right. And this is how I see her now. I see her through the lens of this conflict. She has her world. I have my world. I have people on my side who can agree with me. I can go get folks to, to confirm my bias. You know, wow, crazy she is over there. This woman's out of control. And now people over here confirming me, and I got my confirmation bias. And she has her friends that agree with her. But we have walked away from our foundation. But Christ calls his people 
calls his people to a higher standard of love. And he calls us to lead in humility. And somebody has to take that first step back towards the foundation. And Paul tells us to consider the interest of others, not just our own. So what I have to do is I have to remove my interest off the table for a minute here to consider hers. Maybe I need to move myself out of the equation. And this is what it looks like to take a step in humility towards reconciliation in the relationship. I have to have to get back established in, in, on, on the foundation here. And this begins to cultivate a different kind of environment. At first we were cultivating an environment of selfishness, but now we're cultivating an environment of humility. She's more likely to want to move towards me now, right? She's more likely. And it doesn't always work this perfectly in real life. This is just a visual. We have our days where it's a little bit harder to move these in real life in the gray house. But this is, this is how we, we cultivate. And then she comes back towards me and we can come back to our foundation. We set our self-interest aside and we, 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 are, we come back to the agape love that this relationship is founded on. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But in all seriousness, I just want to say, I know that it, it doesn't always work like this in real life. Um, there, there are some people who either online or in person where you feel like you have a relationship that has an impenetrable wall and it's very difficult and you don't know what to do. And I just want to encourage you just to reach out to someone. Uh, that's the reason why we, we are the church. You don't have to go through that alone. Sometimes it can be difficult to, f to figure that out by yourself if it's just to you too. I want to encourage you. You can reach out to me. You can reach out to someone on staff here. You can talk to a fellow brother and sister in Christ. Do not suffer in silence with, with this kind of thing. It can, be, it can be very discouraging to try to work through that in real life. And, and I know. So, uh, but we have a great example in Christ for what this is supposed to look like. I just want to direct this one more time. And yes, uh, when you realize you're loved, you love differently. When you realize you're loved, you love differently. And that's how, where we have to go back to. We have to go back to the fact that in Christ, we were loved greatly. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And here's what he did who being in the very nature of God did not account equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the ultimate example of agape love, and that's the love that God offers to you. He wants to repair our relationships with one another, but the ultimate relationship that needs repair is our relationship with Him. That's where the most uh, restoration is needed most. And as we receive that love from Him, now we have something to give to others. We cannot give people what we don't have. We aren't born, we don't come into this world selfless. We, we don't come into this world considering others. 
but we have a great God who offers us great love if we just will receive it. I just want to pray for us. Father God, we come to you in your matchless mighty son's Jesus' name. God, I pray for the people under the sound of my voice that do not know you, that they would know your great love, God. God, when we elevate ourselves, we kill our relationships. God, show us how to love like you, and I pray that we would start by receiving the love that you offer. God, I pray for the person that's under the sound of my voice or either online that as you tug on their hearts, that they would let you in. Like Lydia let you in in Philippi when she accepted you. I pray that the person here would let you in. God, I also want to lift up the marriages in this room. God, I pray for those who are, are struggling. I pray for those who are in difficulty in this season. I pray uh, for, for healing. I pray for repair. I pray for agape love. I pray for resolution for very difficult problems. God, I pray for, for better days ahead. God, we thank you and we love you. It's in your mighty sons, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.